Turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 1, and we're going to get there in just a minute. And we're going, to use your, we're going to use the scriptures this morning. I hope you're ready for that. So whether it's electronic or actual turning pages, whatever, but so keep that handy. And as we're going to use the scriptures, first I want to tell a little bit of a story. And I've heard it told different ways. I don't know which way is right. So if you, if you want to correct me later, that's fine. You can. Um, but uh, I hope this, I think we'll get us going in a direction that I think the scriptures would take us this morning to encourage us and to think, us, think this morning uh, about who God is. Yeah, I agree. Amen. Uh, so Kurt Richter, a well-known Harvard graduate and scientist with John Hopkins University in the 50s, uh, did a rather unorthodox experiment. Uh, he wanted to figure out how long rats could swim before they drowned. How many of you, that's a question you've been pondering? Yeah, yeah. Okay. He wanted to figure that out. And uh, so he took, he took water, some buckets, and so, and so filled the buckets with water and uh, moving water so the rats wouldn't be able to grab hold of the side and uh, put the rats in and see, to see how long, because rats are kind of known actually for being able to swim and stay alive. And, and so, so he was curious, how long would they stay? And uh, the rats, all of them would drown. They would kind of give up somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes of swimming, which it doesn't sound like actually that long of a time. Uh, maybe because that's my lifeguard in me, I don't know, but uh, you know, it doesn't sound like that long of a time, especially for a creature or an animal, I don't know what you want to call a rat, but uh, it seems like they should be able to tread water and swim for longer than that. So he, he decided in the next experiment uh, to, he would actually then put the rats in the water and uh, just before they would give up, so you could see, you, could, you know, they're getting tired and they're struggling to swim and struggling to keep their head up, and, and uh, just before they'd give up and kind of sink to the bottom, he would actually grab them out and set them, up, set them out and let them catch their breath and rest for a minute and maybe dry them off or I'd give them a snack. I don't know. But he would, he would rescue them. And then he'd put them back in. And what he discovered, here's the amazing part, those same rats now swam for an average of 60, six, zero hours, two and a half days, those rats could swim after having been rescued one time. So you pull them out at 15 minutes or whatever it is, let them rest for 30 seconds to a minute and put them back in, and they averaged 60 hours, 240 times longer. And what was his conclusion? That saving a rat from drowning, even temporarily, gave that rat hope. Hope. And that suddenly enabled a rat to swim for 60 hours. In Exodus chapter 1, if you don't have a church background, uh, let me try to catch you up quickly. The people of God, God's chosen people, find themselves in Egypt, not first as slaves, but, but because Joseph, who was a Jew through the Sovereign hand of God has made his way up the ranks of the Egyptian ruling class, saves Israel out of a horrific drought. So Israel has now become part of the Egyptian empire. This is before Jerusalem established, before the promised land, before King David, before any of that. And so we pick it up starting in Exodus verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. 
And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And by the way, that's a sentence that is true of the people of God from the very beginning to this day. Did you catch that? The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. And I praise the Lord and thank the Lord for that. But continuing on, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And before we move on here, I want to point out to you that difficulty, you're not, this is not new to you. Difficulty, hardship, pain should not surprise us. It's everywhere. It has been since God called a people to himself, and it continues to this day and will continue until the Lord returns. Christ himself said, you will have trouble. And the apostles and different writers of the New Testament remind us, don't be surprised when these things come. And here we have an example all the way back, the beginning of Exodus, of these people who are the people of God, who are loved by God, who are called his own, and who are where he put them. God himself is the one who put them there. And according to this text, are being dealt with shrewdly. Now, if we're honest, a lot of us, I think, in this room could probably would admit that uh, there have been multiple times in the last year that we have felt like we were being dealt with shrewdly. <laughs> but here, the people of God are afflicted with heavy burdens. Again, that will resonate, I think, with some of us. They're oppressed and even here fully enslaved. There are those of us who, like, I, I sometimes or I do feel oppressed. Maybe it's not by people. Maybe it is. Maybe it's by the darkness and the sin that we sometimes wrestle with. We feel enslaved. We feel oppressed. And it's into this reality that the people of God sometimes, in these situations that are difficult, feels as if we've been abandoned by God. As if God is nowhere to be found, and that his salvation is make-believe, and does he really even care? Yet as this narrative progresses, as we see in Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 23, these words, and this is going to be our focus this morning, starting in verse 23 through 25 of Exodus chapter 2. During these many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Let me pray for us again this morning. Heavenly Father, here is your word to us this morning. You have preserved it, you have kept it, you have written it, you have ordained it for your purposes. And so this morning, as we gather I pray that you would use your word to strengthen and encourage us. Your word is alive and active. And sometimes, Lord, we're not. And so I pray that you would 
raise up in us a desire to hear from you. By your grace, I pray you'd give us ears to hear the truth that you have for us this morning, that we would leave this place having been encouraged, having heard from you, having a, a steadfast focus and mind to follow hard after you, for you are indeed worthy. May you grant us the eyes to see that this morning in your precious name. Amen. This amazing little text here in verses 23 to 25, an interlude almost, if you could say. Moses has been writing. Moses is the author here of these books, the Pentateuch of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And here we have in Exodus, to be honest, we actually have a little bit of autobiography of Moses telling his story. And uh, so beginning of chapter 1, situation that causes Moses to be born in this, on the scene, and the story of Moses' birth and, you know, being hidden in the bulrushes, and you may know some of, those, some of that story. And then Moses, at, at age 40, eventually ended up killing an Egyptian and kind of fleeing and running to Midian uh, for 40 years. And um, time has passed. And suddenly Moses kind of puts this interjection in here, this pause on the story, and says, listen, I want to remind you, this is, this is what God has been doing, but it's not about me, this is about God. God is the subject here. God is the main character. He's the one in control. He's the one moving pieces. And uh, so that's what these verses do. They remind us that God is the one in control. And so we see several, several verbs are used in these verses to describe anthropomorphically, if I can use that word, describe some of what God is doing, what God is experiencing. It says, first, God knows. God knew. Regardless of what you and I are walking in, the trouble, the struggles, the difficulties, here's the great news of the gospel of Jesus. God knows. He knows. He's not a stranger to where you are or I are. He's not ignorant of what's going on in your heart, in your life, in your mind, in your relationships. He's not surprised. He's not shocked. He's not shuddering what to do. God knows. We see that in the text. God knew. Then we also see that he hears. He hears. It is most often in our difficult times that we feel like our prayers aren't going anywhere. Have you had that feeling before? You're praying and you're crying out to the Lord and it feels like you're just bouncing off the ceiling and coming right back to you. Or it's been a long time and you're not sure God's really hearing. Here we see God, verse 24, heard their groaning. And in fact, it's interesting to me because truthfully, God didn't even, they're not necessarily even crying out to God. Did you catch the, the text? Excuse me. The text is not really specific. Verse 23 they groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. See, God's listening. It wasn't even necessarily specifically said that they're crying out and praying to him. They're just crying out. We need help. What are we going to do? And God heard their cries. And then don't get thrown. Don't get surprised. This phrase in scripture comes up regularly. Verse 24, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't get thrown off by that word remembered. That's not the kind of remembering that you and I do, like, oh yeah, I forgot. I will do that now. God had not forgotten. He was not unaware. 
when the scriptures talk about God remembering, that means God's now going to act. It's time for him to step up and move. That's what God remembering means in the scriptures. Wasn't that he'd forgotten, but rather now is the time. And then we see that God intervenes. So he remembers and he intervenes. He does something. I want you to be encouraged. Just, just those ideas this morning as we continue here in a minute. The fact that God hears, God sees, God intervenes, and God knows. He knows all of the struggles that have been going on in the last year, or the last week, or the last decade, or whatever it might be. He knows, and he hears, and he sees. <clears throat> and sometimes my heart needs to be encouraged and reminded that sometimes I need to be given a perspective that helps me take the next step and continue to be faithful to walk and to follow Christ, even when the circumstances and the conditions I see around me don't seem to match up with what I feel like they should. Amen? So let's, I want to remind myself, my own heart, and you as well this morning, of three truths. Three, tr three truths that we see from the scriptures. And uh, I think they'll be helpful as we think about who God is, that we can, be le we can learn and be reminded about God, the one who we do pray to and cry out for help to. But let me be clear, this is how God acted in this particular historical context. It doesn't mean okay, that God is going to do this exact thing for you and I today or tomorrow. God suddenly in the next chapter shows up in a burning bush to Moses. I'm not saying tomorrow that you're going to experience God talking to you through a burning bush. That'd be really cool if he did, but that's not what the text is saying here. God acted amazingly in different specific historical contexts, right? He writes on the wall. He has a donkey suddenly speaking. He does all kinds of amazing, cool things that would probably freak us out if that took place. But truthfully, that is what we want. When we pray, I kind of want God to be at my beck and call, right? And suddenly do this amazing thing. And how quickly I forget who's sovereign and who's not. <laughs> Three truths that are true from the scriptures about who our God is and who this God is. Same God who hears, who sees, who knows, who intervenes. I want to state them both negatively and positively. Sometimes that's helpful. <clears throat> so if you're a note taker, here are those three things this morning. God is not distant. He is involved. God is not distant. He is involved. Secondly, God is not unapproachable. He is near. God is not unapproachable. He is near. And third, God is not indifferent. He is good. Those three truths that we see in the scriptures and uh, in many ways, in different, different situations, and we see the same truths are here true. The same truths are here as well as we see of God hearing and knowing and intervening and stepping in and helping. So number one, God is not distant. He is involved. 
We certainly see that here. God is not distant. He is involved. In fact, Moses here, remember, he's, a, he's already spent 40 years out in Midian. Are you catching on here? Moses is actually in the middle when he's writing this, right before he gets into chapter 3, in, in the time of Moses, he's 80. So God has already been at work for 80 years, getting Moses ready for this time. Uh, do you, can you picture that? God is not distant. He actually is involved. He rescued Moses when a lot of the baby boys maybe were getting killed. God rescued Moses, had him grow up in Pharaoh's own house, and then sent him out to 40 years in the wilderness in preparation, and now is about to call him to go back to Egypt. God is not distant. He is involved. In fact, he can go back to Egypt because during, verse 23, during these many days, the king of Egypt died. The assumption is that's the Pharaoh who was in control when Moses killed the Egyptian. So that Pharaoh is now dead. Moses is probably now free to come back. In our terminology, the statues of limitations is, is gone. God sees and acts through history, and the truth of God is near is throughout the scriptures. Psalm 34, Psalm 105, right? The Lord is near. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Now he moves and acts through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The, in fact, the beginning of Hebrews reminds us, right? In old days, in the days prior, he spoke to us through the prophets, through many means, many ways. Now he's speaking to us through Christ. That's how God has revealed himself to us, chosen to reveal himself to us, through Christ, through the scriptures. And so that's now God speaking to us. So the final word of our trouble and our difficulty is not his final word. That trouble and that difficulty is not the last word. No, God is with us. We just sang it a minute ago. God is with us. Isn't that one of the promises that most encourages you? God is with you. Who can be against you? God is with you. He says, I will be with you. But do you and I believe it? The scriptures are full of examples of God being with his people, with the brokenhearted, in the midst of struggling. Not to, not to always rescue and redeem them, but in the midst of their difficulty. God is with them. God was with Paul and Silas in the jail. God was with his people, helping the hurting, strengthening the weak. Turn with me to Malachi chapter 3 and let me encourage your heart. I, I pray with this little, pray with this little, these verses at the end of Malachi, probably a book you don't go to very often. Probably the last page of the Old Testament in your Bibles, Malachi chapter 3. And we see some of the promises of God that he gives to his people as he hears them. So chapter 3, starting in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. Oh, what good news that is. And the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. See, God is actually writing a book. 
And this is not the book of life that puts your name in it if you know Christ. This is a book of telling what you have done. God doesn't forget. He's keeping track of those things. A book was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. And here's some promises. Verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord. Not just, not just any possession. Says the Lord of hosts in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. God is not distant. He is involved. One of my favorite quotes uh, from former pastor John Piper is that God is always doing a million things in and around your life. And on your best day, you might know two or three of them. Did you catch that? God is doing a million things in and through and around you. But we're only given the eyes to see on our best day two or three of them. See, God is involved. God is involved in what is going on in my life and in yours. And the scriptures over and over and over remind me of that. I'm learning some about this involvement with people who sometimes feel distant in a, in a human perspective. As, as John said, Stacy and I are privileged to have seven children. Only two of them are still at home, the two boys. So I'm very involved in the two boys' life, probably often more than they want me to be involved. <clears throat> but I think that's what a good dad is supposed to do to some degree, right? But the girls, the five girls who are all out of the house, in apartments, in houses, have jobs, or in school, or whatever, it's harder. I think you understand this. It's harder to be involved in their life. Or at least for them to feel like dad still cares. How do I do that? You know, I can text, I can call once in a while. Or I can just wait for them to call me and ask for money. It's harder. But God doesn't have that struggle. He is involved in my life and in yours. There is that distance problem doesn't exist for him. That knowledge of what to do doesn't exist for him. That struggle of that. Oh, it's great news. God is not distant. He is involved, and I need to keep moving. Number two, God is, sorry about the double negative here, God is not unapproachable. He is near. God is not unapproachable. He is near. Now that may, if your mind starts to click through stories and things in Scripture, you start to think, wait a minute. God is often in Scripture unapproachable. He is a consuming fire. We're going to look at that text in just a minute. And what's the normal response in Scripture when God shows up on the scene? It's fall on your face, be afraid. And by the way, that's right. Because he is the holy, awesome creator God of the universe, the judge of the universe. That is who God is. So there is a right fear there. But it's different for his children. Right? It's different for his children. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. I told you we were going to use the, use the scriptures this morning. Exercise our fingers a little bit. Uh, a passage that I was just reminded of earlier this week and has 
such an encouragement to me, especially considering this idea of God is not unapproachable. He is near. My prayers don't have to span the distance between in my thinking of where here I am, Michigan, and God somewhere up beyond the heavens. It doesn't somehow have to get there. No, God is near. God is with me. And if I know Christ, God is in me. Starting at verse 18 of Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> Excuse me. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So here's that picture of God scary. Seen here, they're gathered around Mount Sinai. We're not to that point in Exodus yet, but they're gathered around Mount Sinai, and God's going to give the law. And what does God do in his presence? What happens? The mountain is shaking as God speaks and as his presence comes down on the mountain. Thunder and lightning. And what are the people going? Uh, Moses, you go. We'll just wait back here. You tell us what he says. But what is Moses himself? Moses himself, I tremble with fear. Verse 22. But. That's a great word in the scriptures. But. You. Talking to believers, those who know Christ. But you have come to Mount Zion, not to Mount Sinai. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable, innumerable angels in festal gathering. Let me translate festal gathering for you. Party. That's what you've come to. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to who? God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to who? Jesus, yes, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. But, it doesn't say will come. Look at 22. This isn't talking just about one day after Christ returns and you will be with him. We look forward to that day, and that day is a great promise and a great expectation that will happen. It says, but you have come. I'm already there in the wonderful mysteries of Christ, of being in Christ. I'm already with God. God is not unapproachable. He is near. Let me illustrate it this way. I grew up as a pastor's kid. And um, from almost all of those years, that I was growing up as my dad was a pastor. He was the uh, smaller churches and he was the sole, sole pastor on staff. And so, translation, he was busy, as all pastors are, but he was busy. And, you know, he, he was in his office and he'd have office hours and, and people would come to see him for counseling and, just, you know, all the this, all this stuff that a pastor does. And when his door was closed, he weren't supposed to go in because he was busy. But there were two people that, well, three, I guess, if you count my mom. There were two people who could ignore that rule. My sister and I. We could walk into Dad's office anytime we needed to. And suddenly had his attention. And had his focus. And I can still picture in my mind times I came into his office. 
and he was busy doing something or talking on the phone, you know, and he'd, hold on a second, whatever, but he'd turn in his chair and look at me. And I had his attention. I had his focus. Now, as I got a little older, I realized there's probably times it's just not wise to walk into Dad's office, but I could. Do you understand? Do you see the point? God is not unapproachable. He is near. And that's true of our great God. He is near. Sometimes our feelings don't, make, don't allow us to feel like he's feared. That's why the scriptures speak truth to us, to remind us of the fact that God is near. God is near. Thirdly, We've seen that God is not distant. He is involved. Secondly, we've seen that God is not unapproachable. He is near. And third, God is not indifferent. He is good. God is not indifferent. He is good. Back to Exodus chapter 2. Moses, Moses didn't know God. But God knew Moses. As we see, if we keep, keep going into chapter 3, we see verse 3. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why? The bush is not burned. I think all of us would kind of do that. After we got over the shock, I will turn aside. I, don't you love that for, formal language? I will turn aside. We would. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that, he turned aside to see God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, I think most of us at that point, Okay, would either fall over or, to be blunt, would need to change our pants. If a burning bush suddenly starts talking to you and calls you by name, see, God knew Moses. And God had a purpose and a plan here for Moses. God had something Mos he wanted Moses to do. And it was for Moses' good, and it was for the people of God's good, and it was for God's glory. Amen? God is not indifferent. He is good. Now, let's be blunt here. This slavery, this difficulty that the people of God are experiencing is, is not new. It didn't just start last week. It's been going on for years, even decades. And the people of God have been waiting and waiting for God to show himself. But God has been moving, and God has been working, and God has been involved, and God is not uncaring about this. He has been with his people through it. And this now happens to be the time for their escape from it. But there are times, as believers, that we are called to wait to trust in the promises of God, to see and to know that God's promises will stand just as the people did. See, I think verse 23 of Exodus 2, during these many days the king of Egypt died. See, a, a new pharaoh takes the throne. And I think there was a little bit of hope from the people that, oh, a new, a new ruler, maybe things are going to be a little different. We know a little bit about that in this country, don't we? Sometimes we hope that a new president or a new leader will make things different. And in that, sometimes in that moment, we're looking to the wrong thing. 
but it got, it was the same or it got worse. And so the people of Israel groaned, cried out for help. God heard, God saw, God remembered, God knew. For God is not indifferent. He is good and he knows. And God has begun a work of restoration and healing in you and in me if I know Christ. And it's extended to and through us, and God's plan is not for that just to suddenly cease. He's not stopping working in you. He who began a good work will bring it to completion. Our slavery, our suffering will end. And it is not pointless. See, isn't that one of the questions we ask? What's the point? I don't see what God is doing. Why? How long does God really care? Those are the questions that naturally come up in our mind in difficulty and situation. And I think the scriptures here over and over and over remind us that God is not distant. He is involved. He is not unapproachable. He is near. And that he's not indifferent. He is good. And he cares and loves his people more than you and I ever could. We need to consider Jesus. What did Jesus do in his difficulty, in his struggle? Who for the joy set before him, what's the joy set before you? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, his work was finished. But for the joy set before him endured the cross. See, these are things that are joy. God is not distant. He's involved in my life. He's near. He's not unapproachable. He loves and cares, and he is good all the time. All the time. He is good. We say those things. So this morning, what's going to enable you? What's going to enable me to press on through through difficult days, whether that's now or a time yet to come? They will come. So what's going to help me to remain steadfast? to be, as the the book of Revelations would call us, to be overcomers. Those who are of God and his children. Let me put it this way. Our behaviors do not rise above our vision. Our behavior does not rise above our vision. One of the things I get to do when I'm out of camp, which isn't often, but when I get out of camp is I coach soccer, I coach basketball in Fairview area schools. And one of my jobs as coach, there's numerous, but one of my jobs as coach is to teach the players what to see on the field or on the court. And if they can see what has to be done, then they have the ability to try to do it, to make that pass, to move to here, to shift whatever. But if they can't see it, they'll never do it. Our our behaviors do not rise above our vision. And so what are these three things of God seeing, hearing, God intervening, and God knowing? And remind us of the fact that he is involved, he is near, and he is good. I need to remind myself of these things so that my vision isn't always just on the circumstances around me, but lifted. Lifted to the one who loves and cares for me. And and has called me his own, his, 
as we saw in Malachi, treasured possession. I can't judge my present circumstances, my present conditions, by just what I see. Because what's more real? The promises of God or my circumstances? I hope, I hope you know that the promises of God are what's real. They will last. They will endure. They will come to, come to pass. My circumstances are just but a passing thing. My whole life, right, is just but a vapor, a breath in all of eternity. But God's promises will stand. And one day, see, the fact that I know God is in control and does all things for his glory and loves me gives me a completely different perspective for these difficult days and hardships and masks and social distancing and whatever else you want to throw in there of loved ones or yourself that are hurt or sick or loved ones that you're praying for their salvation, or whatever it might be. I don't know what you're waiting on God for. One of the things that quickly comes to mind for me is uh, at camp, we, we didn't have last summer. And so people have kind of gotten out of the routine, especially young people have gotten out of the routine of coming to camp. And so we're actually struggling right now, humanly speaking, struggling, to have enough summer staff, counselors and activity area leaders and things like that, to run summer. We're way behind normal. And I don't know how we're going to have enough staff to do what we want to do this summer. But see, it's, as Moses reminded the people here in his writing, it's not about me. This is about God and his glory. And if God wants to provide enough staff for us to, for us to counsel your children and your grandchildren, and for them to have a great time at camp, then he's going to provide it. Or he's going to do something completely different that I have no idea what it is yet. But the truth that he's in control and does all things for his glory and that he's good helps me wait. Doesn't it? It just does. The people felt hopeless. <clears throat> Yet back in Genesis 15, this whole thing was told. God had told Abraham in Genesis 15, your people are going to go down to Egypt. They're going to find themselves in slavery for 400 years, and I'm going to pull them out. Guess what? It's been about 430 years since they went down to Egypt. And here's God going to pull them out, doing exactly what he said he was going to do. So why should I doubt? I'm his child. He is not unapproachable. He is not indifferent. He is not distant. And am I going to trust him in the midst of my struggles that he has forgiven my sins to grant the blessings of fellowship in Christ? And if you don't know Christ this morning, I encourage you to consider the truth that your sins God is distant, and he is not near. And there is wrath and punishment coming for you if you do not know Christ this morning. But Jesus.
came and died on the cross for your sin and for mine, took my place, took the wrath of God that I deserved for my sin. He lived a perfect, sinless life and was killed and rose again and is now interceding before God for me and for you if you know Christ. And so put your trust and faith in him, the only one who can rescue and redeem, the only one who gives us Un, who gives us approachable access to God the Father. Because in Christ, I am made into a son. I am made into a child of God, adopted into his family. I pray that the fact that God sees, that God hears, that God intervenes, and God knows.